Ephesians chapter 4. We've been on a journey through this book now. This is the, the seventh message in a series. I love it. I just love this book. I love Paul. Um, the more you, you, more time you spend just soaking in this truth, the more it impacts you, challenges you, changes you. And we're not going to get very far today. We're only going to do half a dozen verses at the start of Ephesians 4. I'm going to slow things down uh, for the rest of this book. Let me read from verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing truth. We thank you for the freedom to sit with open Bibles and allow your word to change us. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will be in this place and will work in each of our lives and will take this great truth and drive it deep into the very core of who we are and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, You'd miss it if it didn't do it. Previously in Ephesus. Very quick run through because it's important at this stage of the book that we remember where we have been so far. The first message we started in Acts 19 and we looked at the transformation that occurred in Ephesus when Paul and the Holy Spirit showed up. First half of Ephesians 1, we looked at the the spiritual blessings that drive Paul and should drive us. I'll review them a bit more later on. In the last half of chapter 1, we looked at prayer and power. In chapter 2, it started off with Paul saying, you were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive. And then the second half of the chapter talks about how you were alienated. You were separated from God's people, and now you've been brought near. All of it in Christ. And then chapter 3 was about the mystery of the gospel and about love and power. And today, there is this word, therefore. It's not in every version, but it is in the original language in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, the word, therefore. Everything in the book now swings on that verse, therefore. And that's why it is important to review where we've been. As I was thinking about this last night, I remembered a scene from a movie I'm sure a lot of you have seen this. If you've seen it, you won't forget it. Um, This is Saving Private Ryan. And uh, if you ever were in the cinema while Saving Private Ryan was on in a different screen to the one that you were in, you still heard Saving Private Ryan. (laughs) 
the first half hour a, a just a brutal in-your-face depiction of, of World War II. And the, the premise of the movie, if you haven't seen it, is that Tom Hanks' character, he, he leads a little group of soldiers who are tasked to get Private Ryan and get him home because several of his brothers have been killed. His poor mother has received about three letters telling her about her sons that have died and the authorities back home say you need to get this guy out and bring him home so that he's not lost as well. So this little group of men go on a treacherous mission to find Private Ryan and to bring him home. It's a powerful, powerful film. But at the end of the movie, Tom Hanks' character is dying from from being wounded in in a battle. And as Private Ryan needles before him and and just is with him during the last moments of his life, Captain, I think it's Captain Miller, says to him, earn this. Earn this. Everything that has happened in the story, the lives that have been lost, the sacrifice that has been made to get this guy and rescue him, he says to him, earn this. In other words, live well live well live a life that is worthy of what has been done in order to secure your life and the movie then shifts to about 50 years in the future where where private ryan is an old man and he's visiting a cemetery with his family with about three generations of his family and he stands before captain miller's grave And he's overcome with emotion. And if you've got a heart at all when you're watching it, you'll be overcome with emotion yourself. And he turns to his wife and he he says to her, tell me I've led a good life. He realizes the sacrifice. He realized the price that was paid to secure his freedom and the burden then of living well as a result of that. And Paul says to the Ephesians after he has told them all that Christ has done for them. He has said that God has chosen you, adopted you, redeemed you, enlightened you, and sealed you. He has said that you've received the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He has talked about the power that raised Jesus from the dead that now works in us. He has talked about how we were dead in sin, but we've been made alive in Christ. He has talked about how we are God's masterpiece, his workmanship. He has talked about how we are part of God's new humanity and new people, separate peoples brought together and one new people created, reconciled to one another and to God. He has talked about how we are part of God's new temple where his presence dwells. We have talked about how the church is the place where God shows his wisdom to the world. And we've talked about the strength and the power and the love of God. And after all of that, three chapters of of just this marvelous presentation of what God has done in Christ, probably unmatched anywhere else in the Bible, suddenly the focus shifts to the people who are listening. And Paul says, in light of all of the stuff that I have gone on about for three chapters, he says, walk worthy. Live well. The the Jews would talk about life as a walk. You're on a journey. You're you're not sitting still. You're not watching. You are walking. You're on a paced journey. You're going somewhere. And he says, walk worthy of the calling that you have received. 
There's a thing uh, that now exists in the whole world of biometrics called gate recognition technology. Gate spelled G-A-I-T, not G-A-T-E. And what this thing can do is it can identify somebody with 99% accuracy from the way that they walk. Facial recognition is very powerful until the camera is not pointed at somebody's face. And there are companies around the world working on this and trying to get it, find out how to get it established, particularly in airports. So that just the way someone walks across the floor can identify who they are. We can mimic a lot of things about each other, but it's very hard to mimic how somebody walks. It is a very unique thing, almost as unique as a fingerprint, how we walk. And this type of technology can, can analyze that and can identify people from about 200 yards away just by the way they walk across the floor. Your walk says a lot about you, about who you are. Your walk identifies you. And Paul now turns the spotlight away from God. He's had the spotlight on God for three chapters and now he swings it on this hinge and he points it at the people. And he says, now for you. Now to, to talk about how you should live. And here the illustration from Saving Private Ryan breaks down because Captain Miller said to Private, Private Ryan, earn this. We don't earn it. We don't earn it. But the challenge is because of what has been done, how will you live? Will you live worthy of the gospel and worthy of the calling that you have received? We move from all of the things that God has done now to the things that we must do. And I love Paul's language. I love the way he speaks to the, to the people. He says, I urge you. He didn't say, I command you. Paul doesn't throw his weight around. He is an apostle. He is an apostolic authority. He has seen the risen Christ. He has been commissioned and he's had revelation from God like no other man since the cross. <clears throat> And yet he still says, I urge you, I beg of you. In the old King James Version it says, I beseech you. That's one of those words I heard in church when I was a child and I never knew what it meant. I beseech you. But he begs the people. He doesn't browbeat them. He doesn't hammer them into a corner. He begs them to live well. And the thing that he he, he, he hangs out in front of them first. Later on in this chapter, we'll read about marriage, or in, in the book, we'll read about marriage. We will read about parenting. We will read about spiritual warfare in prayer. We will read about how we engage with outsiders. We will read about employees and masters. But Paul isn't going to any of that stuff now. The first thing he goes after the first thing, as he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. The first thing that he goes after is this, unity in the church. Before we get to all of those other things, before we get to apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers in verse 11, before we look at the church and how the church operates, before all of that, unity, unity. And he begs them to be united. He begs them to be united. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
God always starts in the church, folks. Always. Always. <coughs> always. Revival, a move of God, whatever you want to call it, it starts in the church. The spotlight goes into our hearts first. And Paul shines that light on, his, on the people in Ephesus and the other churches that got this letter. And he says, make every effort to be united. There's a sight that is regularly seen these days that fills my heart with joy. Um, you see it probably about every three or four days at the minute. And it's easy to find on the internet. And I got a picture of it for you. Uh, if this doesn't make you grin, few things will. Look at that smile. That is uh, a gentleman called, what's he called? Klopp. That's Klopp. Yeah. That is the happiest man on earth <laughs> most of the time. Um, the man is just infectiously joyful. And we, we, we record Match of the Day on a Saturday night and watch it on a Sunday afternoon. Try to avoid scorelines. Don't always do it successfully. And we watch the highlights and then fast forward through the talky bit. You know, the bit where they sit in the studio and they blather on about this and that. We fast forward through all that. The only bit where I will stop is Klopp's interview. <laughs> I just find, find the man so joyful to listen to, to watch, to hear how he talks about his players. And as you read about this current Liverpool team, if you read articles about them, or if you read uh, reports on matches, you will see a word coming up again and again and again. And it is the word unity. Unity on the pitch. Unity in the dressing room. Unity on the training ground. Unity. A team united. And that's a great grin. From a great grin to a great gurn. <laughs> There's another team that claimed to be united, but up until a few weeks ago, weren't really. Every report that you would read, every, every match report or article that you would read, talked about disunity. Disunity in the dressing room. Fallouts, squabbles, players costing £90 million and then not being put in the team because they're not getting on with each other. Disunity. And since that has been addressed, things have improved tremendously for that team. Simple illustration, but unity is a powerful thing. It is a powerful thing. And it is hard for us sometimes, I think, to grasp how big a deal it was for Paul. I've already said that he, he, he pleaded with people. We're used to division in the church. We have got used to this. We've got familiar with it. Shame on us. We have come to accept it and say, oh, well, that's just what happens. Paul says no. He begs them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Again, a letter that deals with so many flat-out practical things in church and in life. And he hits it right at the start in chapter 1. He says, I beg of you, church. I beg of you, be united. Be united. In Philippians 4, he names two women. And he says, I plead with you, Odia. And I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These were two women who were very likely in leadership in the church. 
part of the leadership of the, of the church in Philippi. And there's something going on and he begs them. He begs them. He says, please. He knows Psalm 133. He knows that the Lord commands blessing where he finds unity. And he begs them. Begs them to agree. And don't confuse unity with uniformity. Kids in a school all wear the same uniform. They all look the same. That's not what the church should be. In fact, that is an abhorrent distortion of the church when everybody looks the same. What, what lets us know that God is at work is when you've got a whole pile of very different people, but yet they're all united because of one spirit. One of the things that we ask each other in discipleship groups that can be quite powerful every week is, have you damaged anyone by your words, either face to face or behind their back? Have you been honoring, understanding and generous in your important relationships? Have you continued to remain angry towards another person? Go after the root of disunity. Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort. This is hard work. This is hard work. In any community, whether it's family, whether it's the workplace, whether it's the church, maintaining relationships is hard graft. And Paul doesn't lighten that. He says, make every effort. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot were both in Jesus' team of 12. Before they came together in that team, they hated each other. One was a freedom fighter against the Romans. One was a tax collector working for the Romans. They hated each other. Jesus put them in the same team and said, sort yourselves out. Sort yourselves out. Make every effort. Eugene used to say that the church was like a big sack of rocks. And God put all the rocks in the sack and then he lifts the sack and he shakes it and shakes it and shakes it. And as the rocks bang off each other, all the sharp pointy edges get knocked off them. We grow in relationship. We grow as a community. And we must make an effort to maintain this. The first sin in the garden separated man from God. The second sin, whenever Cain killed Abel, separated man from man. Sin separates. Sin divides. Sin breaks the unity that God wants to see among his people. And this is one of the few things where God, Jesus actually tells us, put, hit the pause button on your worship. Hit the pause button on your singing. In Matthew chapter 5, and I remember preaching on this over across the way about two years ago. Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming together to praise God, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is an amazing thing because as we come to worship God, it's almost as if we say, God, can, can you just hang on for a few minutes? I have something I need to go and sort out. And this is one of the few things where he'll say, yeah, I'll wait for you. Away you go and sort it out. I'll be here when you get back. 
I mentioned when I, when I preached on the passage that Jesus is speaking in Galilee. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. It took three days to get from there to Jerusalem by foot. And he's painting a scene where somebody leaves Galilee, walks three days to Jerusalem, brings or else buys a sacrificial animal to bring to the temple, then remembers that there's tension in a relationship, leaves the animal there, walks three days back to Galilee, fixes things, puts things right in the relationship, and then another three days back to Jerusalem to make the offering. It's almost comical in its extremity, but it's not comical. It's serious. It's serious. And I wonder sometimes when we gather, or sometimes when I watch large gatherings of, of, of Christians singing passionate worship in big arenas and big events, and I think how many people there actually need to just say to the worship leader, do you know what, you just hit the pause button. I need to go and sort something out. I need to go and address something. I'm actually behaving contrary to God's word by bringing this offering with my heart in the state that it's in. Paul goes on to say that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you were given a beautiful house with a beautiful garden, all of it just finished to the highest standard and and everything as neat as can be, and you then moved into that house and did nothing for six months, the place would be in some state. If you never did any dishes... The kitchen sink and the worktops and the whole place would be a mess. If you never maintained the garden, it would become overgrown and untidy. Every, every summer when we go away for a week, the week before that is just spent running around the garden, cutting grass and cutting hedges and weeding vegetable beds and doing loads of jobs. Because if it's left not maintained, it becomes an awful lot more difficult when you get back and another week has passed. Another week of weeds growing in the garden. Another week of the grass growing and the heads growing. We have to maintain the unity that God has given us. Jesus has purchased unity on the cross. And then he says, your job is to maintain it. And the word is a strong word. It, it means guard. It's the same word that's used in in incidences in the New Testament where someone is in prison and there is a person guarding them. That's the intensity of it. Your responsibility and mine is to guard the unity of the people of God. Don't ever come in here and think that there's maybe a small number of people whose job it is to dictate the atmosphere of the place and the ethos of the place. It's not. It's everybody's responsibility. Youngest to oldest, everyone together, equal responsibility to guard the unity that Christ has protected. Don't take it for granted. We're here week in, week out, and we sometimes when we get familiar with it, I love it when, when some of these folks come home at Christmas and they haven't been here for a year and they're able to come and say what change they see and how much they appreciate the community and the family. You've got to guard that, folks. Because Satan is determined to sow seeds of discord and just tease it apart. That's what he wants to do. If you neglect dealing with the weeds in the garden, it becomes a horrendous job. Grow these little vegetables and, and round about 
maybe April, May time, there are little parsnip shoots coming up out of the ground and they're about an inch high and they're really delicate. And all around them, there's these hateful weeds that you could, you could almost watch them growing. They're growing that fast. And if you don't get down and get your hands dirty and get those weeds out, you're going to lose the whole lot. And if you leave it for a week or two or a month or two, it becomes a massive job. We are to guard and protect unity. We are to move quickly when unity is under threat. And he says that we are to maintain this unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bible open, you can cast your eye back to what Jesus did in Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 14, He is our peace. It says in verse 15 at the end of the verse that he has made peace. And it says in verse 17 that he has preached peace. Christians are to be peacemaking people. And when the world knows us as a divided people, that is a shocking indictment against us. When the world looks in at the church and says they squabble and they fight and they bicker and they fall out over tiny little things, that is a shocking indictment on the name of the one who died to purchase peace. And Paul also tells us that the attitudes that we are to hold if we're actually going to see this become a reality. If you back up to verse 2 of chapter 4, he says you're to be completely humble. Gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. This is hard work. This is hard work. How are we going to do this? How can this be achieved in a group of human beings anywhere where where the tendency is always for selfishness to rise up? How are we going to achieve this? Paul says you've got to be completely humble. Jesus transformed the word humility. In the ancient world, if someone described you as humble, that was actually a derogatory term. It was a derogatory term. You were low and you were worthless and you didn't have the strength to stand up for yourself. Jesus transformed what that word actually means when he humbled himself. A guy called John Paul Dixon says that humility is the noble choice to forego your status And use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And C.S. Lewis famously said, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not that you put yourself down. It's not that you go around and say, Oh, I'm a useless worm and I'm good for nothing and I have no gifts and I have no abilities and just, just let me fester in a corner and don't pay any attention to me. That's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less (laughs) and thinking of others more so. Humility is so important in the church. Uh, A guy that I listen to sometimes called Rich Nathan, who is the pastor of a vineyard church in Columbus in Ohio, he says that the unity of the Christian church in America today is being destroyed by a proud pharisaical spirit especially on Christian radio and in the blogosphere, by self-appointed judges who attack good, godly, sacrificial, Bible-believing Christians, raising a question mark over them. This is what pride always does 
we presume to be above another person. We look down on them and we judge them. And I don't know if you've noticed, but if you spend any time online, going around Christian websites and blogs, the amount of slabbering that goes on about other people and what they believe is tragic. It really is tragic. Now, I'm not talking about abandoning the truth of God's word. There are issues upon which we are not called to be united with people. If somebody says Jesus did not rise from the dead, we're not required to be united with that view. Somebody says the cross and Jesus' work on the cross did not pay for our sins, we're not required to be united. If somebody takes the institution of marriage and tears it apart and redefines it, we're not required to be united with that viewpoint. But if somebody says um, we, we like our people to dress a certain way, that's fine. <laughs> if somebody says we prefer to use this version of the Bible rather than that version, so what? Big deal. We're not going to blog about it. We're not going to squabble about it and fall out about it. If somebody says, well, we practice baptism of children and you practice baptism of adults uh, whenever they repent and they choose to follow Jesus, that's okay. We're not going to fall out. We're not going to cut off fellowship and love from one another. But that attitude, especially on the internet, of, of heresy hunting, of just criticizing and nitpicking, does not create unity. We are to be humble. We are to be gentle. This has been described as strength under control. And one of the greatest images of this is a wild horse being broken so that all of its strength can now be harnessed. Instead of it being dangerous and unruly and damaging, it is now useful. Its strength is harnessed. Meekness is another word for it, or being teachable. Has anyone got a voice into your life who can just say, who can challenge you, who can look right into your heart and you know you're safe with that person and they know they're safe with you and they can look right into your heart and find out whether or not you are teachable, whether or not you are meek. Both of these things were perfectly represented in Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's easy to come to someone who is gentle and who is humble. If someone thrashes around wildly, criticizes other Christians, other ministries, other speakers, other churches, you don't really want to go to that person. But Jesus says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. And therefore we are very safe in coming to him. Do we also hold that attitude towards others? He said we're to be patient. This is that great word that's also in 1 Corinthians 13, long-suffering, putting up with people that are hard to put up with. Putting up with people that are hard to put up with. Suffering long. You'll not get far in family, in church, in work, in any sphere of life without long suffering. There will be seasons that you will just have to put up with things and also seasons when people will just have to put up with you. 
These are the things that we need to have. These are the attitudes we need to hold in our hearts if we are to see unity, a reality in the church. And the last one he mentions is love. He's just prayed at the end of chapter 3 that we would be rooted and established in love. And if we want to see unity, love has got to rule. Got to rule. I was praying over this this morning and just thinking about... You, you, you don't really see it in this country, but maybe you see it in America or in movies where you'll see signs saying men at work. We have roadworks or whatever, but it'll say men at work. And see, when a church is loving and a church is focusing on unity, there's a big sign over the church that says God at work. God at work. And if we're not loving in our relationships, if we are divided just the way the world is divided, what are we inviting people into? Come and join us and be like us and squabble and fight and bicker just like everybody else. Or like one person in the second century said of the church, see how they love each other. A guy who was not a Christian at the time but subsequently became a Christian, a guy called Tertullian, he observed how the Christians looked after one another, died for one another, and he said, see how they love each other. If we try to develop unity without love, this is pretty much what we get. You'll get something that'll look good for a short time. Looks impressive. A lot of work and a lot of intricacy and a lot of effort goes into it. But the slightest draft, the slightest breeze, and down it all goes. Unity must come from love and no other source. It must be born out of love. And this responsibility, as I said, is on us all. Romans 12, Paul says, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Every Christian has the responsibility to guard this unity. I remember a few years ago as I was praying about a difficult issue, a difficult relationship, frustrated with arguments and disagreements, And I remember coming to the conclusion that mature Christians don't always win arguments because they're too concerned about winning hearts. If I win the argument but lose your heart, what have I achieved? What have I achieved? There are times, again, there are the big issues that we don't walk away from, but there are times over smaller issues we need to walk away. Dallas Willard tells the story of how he was in a lecture one time and one of the students challenged him during his lecture. Vociferously, arrogantly, this this young man just got in his face and started attacking what he was saying. And Willard listened to him and then just gently responded, didn't argue with him and closed the lecture and they went for their coffee break or whatever. And one of the students, one of the other students then came to him and said, you could have destroyed him. You have the wisdom and you have the ability with words and you have the knowledge You could have just wiped him out. Why didn't you just wipe him out? And Dallas Willard said to him, I was exercising the spiritual discipline of not having to have the last word. That's class. The spiritual discipline of saying, your heart is more important to me than me winning the argument. Unity. And as we close, the foundation for all of this is in verses four to six. It's the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely united. 
the church cannot be divided. You might get this illustration, you might not. Hopefully anyone who's like 15 or 16 and has been in my classroom will get it. If you take one atom of a substance and you cut it in half, you don't have a half an atom and another half an atom. If you take one atom of calcium and you somehow are able to slice down through it, you don't have a half a calcium atom and a half a calcium atom. Splitting the thing in two changes its identity. It no longer has the identity that it had. The church cannot be split any more than God can be split. There is one body. There is one body. And the reason there is one body is because there is one spirit. So people who normally would have nothing in common, no reason for being together, come together because within them dwells the same spirit. That's the uniting factor. There is one body, only one. Not 10, not 20, not 15,000 different bodies. There is one body because there is one spirit. This is hard work. And it can only be achieved in the power of the Holy Spirit. The things that, that Paul has said in Ephesians 4 about humility and gentleness and love and long-suffering, that's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is at work, unity will take place. If the Spirit is not at work, there will be no unity. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is evidence of His presence among a people that He unites them. Paul has a tremendous way of just hanging out a few words and leaving people to chew on them. In the first Corinthians, when he begs the people to be united, he just throws this out. This is Christ divided. I can, I can imagine him just, just leaving that there, as they say. You know, people nowadays, they'll post something online and they'll write a wee, it'll say, just leaving this out there, you know. I can just imagine Paul just putting that and saying, I'm just leaving this out there for a while. Think about that. In your squabbling and your disagreements, is Christ divided? And how can it be that you are actually functioning as his body if you are divided? How can it be? We live in a world where I do believe it is a huge thing for people to walk across the door of a church. A huge thing takes tremendous courage and they might only do it a few times in their lives and if they walk in and they see division they'll just walk out again something in them will let them know the Holy Spirit isn't really working here I don't like it <coughs> is Christ divided in his prayer the night that he was betrayed at the end of John 17 his whole drive was, was unity. He said, Father, I want all of them to be one. And then he said it again, that they may be one. And then he said it again, that they may be brought to complete unity. As he faced the cross, that's what was on his heart. A people united. So, do you understand the greatness of what God has done for you. And then do you understand the responsibility as the whole thing swings around 
180 degrees and the light now points on you and on me the responsibility to live a life that is worthy worthy of what he has done unity is a sign of the presence of the holy spirit disunity and division is disgraceful and you need to get down on your knees beside those little seedlings and get those weeds out of there because if they're left they will grow and they will grow and they will grow and you will no longer be able to see the little plant Father thank you for your people thank you Lord for the unity that you purchased thank you Lord that that it was huge in your heart in your prayers and in your life and still is thank you Lord that it was huge in the heart of Paul that he who had such authority would beg and plead with people to be united and Lord I just pray something of that will become real in our hearts today that we will catch the intensity of the burden that you have and that Paul had for your church to be one. That we will concern ourselves about hearts and not about arguments. We'll concern ourselves about the health of the one body. We will not attack it, that we will not mar it. Lord, your body does not do self-harm in Jesus' name. Let there be no self-harm in your body, Lord, where we do harm to one another face to face or behind people's backs. Lord God, guard the unity. Holy Spirit, will you develop more and more of, of your fruit in our lives so that there'd be a big sign over this people saying, God at work, you're safe here. There's humble people, there's humility and there's gentleness and you can come to this place and encounter Jesus. You're safe. Oh Lord, teach us, we pray. May we all have that burden on our hearts, Lord, to just even to ask someone today, tell me if I'm living a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. Tell me that, that, I have, that I'm honoring Jesus. Lord, that we would preserve those relationships, whether it's in friendship or in discipleship or what it is, but we'd preserve those relationships that allows people to ask us those questions, to challenge us. Lord, thank you even for the work that's been done recently to unite churches in this town. May that work thrive and grow, Lord. And may it be a signal to the whole town that God is at work, that the Spirit is moving, that we don't have to nitpick over fine details. We love you, Lord, and we serve you and follow you. May that unity speak more to this wider community than anything else, Lord God. May you bless this town. May you bless the businesses. May you bless the high street, Father. May you bless the marriages and the homes. May you bless the health of people, Lord God. Because your church wants to be united.
Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we have said things that have not helped. Those attitudes that we've held, whether in frustration or what, whether we can justify them or not, is not important. Those attitudes we've held sometimes that have added to division and not to unity. Lord, forgive us. Give us grace to forgive others. Give us grace to ask others for forgiveness.